Hey there, it's Gary Parrish. It's Friday, September 1st. Welcome back to the Ion College Basketball Podcast. Got Matt Norlander with me, and our annual Candid Coaches Series concludes today uh, with a simple question. Who is the most powerful person in college basketball? We're going to discuss that a little later on, perhaps some other Candid Coaches questions as well. But I wanted to start with uh, the big news of the week, and that's the fact that LaMelo Ball... Uh, the youngest of the big ballers has a signature shoe. It is priced at $395. Makes him the first high school player to ever have his own shoe. It could also be an eligibility concern based on the NCAA rule book. LeVar Ball is on record saying he doesn't really care. They'll deal with that when they have to deal with that. But Norlander, um, I feel like this is something everybody's been discussing over the past 24 hours. I don't know how many people are actually discussing it with a, a base of knowledge about you know what possible eligibility concerns Lamelo could face if he were to enroll at, at UCLA. I, I, I know you reached out to the NCAA. Uh, where are we at on the Lamelo Ball, uh, the big baller shoe, and how it could affect his eligibility um, as an amateur athlete? Right now, the NCAA will basically pay no mind to Lamelo Ball. Um, he and his family are free to do whatever they like to do until they attempt to you know clear him for eligibility to play collegiate athletics and then and only then will the ncaa in an official capacity uh you know review his status that is obviously uh, a ways away as lamello is you know starting his junior year of high school right now so this is a process that at the absolute soonest is 20 months away um so with that all being said you know any anyone that is not yet a college athlete can do kind of whatever they want in this regard. And then it's just a matter of if it's, it's going to truly threaten their eligibility. Um, what can't happen is LaMelo Ball cannot, and this is, you know, it opens up an entirely different discussion, I think. He cannot allow, the NCAA does not allow prospects to promote commercial products prior to enrolling in a given school um, if it's if it's not for pay, he cannot specifically endorse products, make money off of those products, and become professionalized in that regard, and still have a chance to be cleared as an amateur athlete. I am of the belief that right now, I understand when you look at the the entirety of the situation and Lamella Ball having a shoe specifically designed attached to him, he will market it. Um, I don't believe, by the way, he can wear this shoe. I might have this wrong. I don't know if he can wear the shoe when he plays high school basketball. There's something there's something because there's another whole issue here, and that's uh, his eligibility playing high school basketball in California. Um, I think there's got to be there's some there's some rule there that that might prevent him from either wearing the shoe or wearing it and promoting it in a certain kind of way. There's all sorts of things that he's going to have to clear if he wants to be able to do that. Uh, But ultimately, I'm not yet convinced that this will prevent him from going to UCLA. But then again, let's also take into consideration the fact that by the time LaMelo Ball could have eligibility for the NCAA, there's the potential that the NBA's draft rule could be different. Uh, He might not be required necessarily to even go to college. Required is not even technically the right term, but... You know, who knows what the collective bargaining agreement it could be at, what negotiations could come at the NBA level. Not that LaMelo, I personally do not believe that LaMelo Ball, I know you're bigger on him than I am, but even if I was being optimistic, I don't see a situation where he is going to have that ability to be like a first-round draft pick when he wants to come out of high school. Um, so there's plenty of questions on the table about this. My kind of return serve to UGP, and you can hit on whatever I've also talked about here, is... You know, one, does Steve Alford even truly in his heart of hearts want LaMelo Ball on that roster? I don't know. I guess that could be remain to be seen with how much LeVar is an influence or isn't with LiAngelo this year. He said we've been told he wasn't really a problem whatsoever with Lonzo. Um, and ultimately, Alford got what he wanted most, and that was Lonzo. I mean, he, he, it was to get Lonzo, you promise you'll give it LiAngelo and LaMelo and all that, yada, yada, yada. But then, uh, secondly, like, does the Ball family even want slash need the college experience for LaMelo because I'll be honest here, he is, he, is, he is an aberration. Um, he is an exception because mostly 
these players, when they go to college, yes, they go to play for big-time programs to be around tremendous training staffs, coaching staffs, play at top 10, top 15 programs, generally speaking, and increase your exposure, both for uh, NBA decision-makers and scouts, general managers, but also to kind of put your name more out there. LaMelo Ball is 16 years old and already has north of 3 million Instagram followers, has a, has a tremendous following, so much to the point that I actually think that his shoe has the potential to sell much better than Lonzo's shoe because there is this fanboy, fangirlism that is following LaMelo in a way that has not caught on with Lonzo and certainly LiAngelo. So I don't even know if they even care that much about getting LaMelo into UCLA eventually. Okay, a uh, lot to unpack here. I, I, first off, this is where you and I split on LaMelo. I think he's terrific. Like, I, I, I understand the backlash because people would watch him playing 17 and under events, and he was a 15-year-old. So he looked like a 15-year-old playing against 17 and under guys sometimes. Uh, but that never meant that he wasn't one of the best 15-year-olds in the world, which makes him one of the best now 16-year-olds in the world because he just turned 16 years old. I think he's going to be awesome. I think Steve Offer does want him. And though... I'm not sure he's the type who could just, if the rule change, go straight out of high school to the NBA. Uh, I do think he's going to be an NBA player. Uh, I, 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 I think he'll be on an NBA roster one day because he'll probably grow into a 6'7", a 6'8", shooter. And those guys tend to have a, a, a place. I don't know that he'll be a, a point guard. I'd probably play him off the ball, whether I'm at UCLA or in the NBA. But, you know, you give me a 6'7", uh, you know, shooter who can also handle the ball well enough to create for himself. Um, that that guy's gonna make a living playing basketball. I like Lamelo Ball a lot. Uh, um, I, I sort of roll my eyes at some of the the. Well, he sucks. Uh, he's really good. He's. I don't, yeah, I don't think he sucks. I just yeah, I just don't for. I don't think like by the time he do graduates. You, do you think Lamelo Ball will play five years in the NBA? Ooh, if you're. Oh, <laughs> that's a good question, GP. All right. Granted, he is 16 right now. Five years, I'll say no. I'll say, I'll yes. say he will not. He will not play. So let me just uh, let me extrapolate that out real quick. Don't include the playoffs. What eighty-two games times five years? That's what approximately a little over four hundred games. So the over/under Lamelo Ball appearing in NBA games at four hundred. I will say under four hundred games. I would say over. I think he's uh, whether he's a star or not, we'll see. But I think he'll have a place in the NBA based on just the very basic reasons that I said i mean he's gonna be he's gonna have good height for his position he can create his own shot and he can make a jumper from basically anywhere on the court like that guy that i barring injury i think he'll be you could very well be right i'm not trying to overly sell the kid i'm just not i'm not sold on him being uh an excellent excellent player that's gotcha okay okay so um we've been through that before (laughs) i think we've done a podcast on this before um here's what i would say okay so i do think they want him at ucla i don't think they're thrilled about this shoe deal it just seems like there's going to be so many ways for for UCLA to try to argue in Lamelo's favor. By the time we get there, they will. They've got plenty of. This isn't something that's been thrust upon them, and they're dealing with it now. They're going to be able to properly prepare, hire the right people. They probably got the right people on staff already. Um, I wonder if there's because I got into an argument with somebody on Twitter about this a few weeks ago about a totally different situation. You know, there is the NCAA rulebook. And then there is the waiver process, which essentially gives the NCAA the uh, the ability to disregard their own rules whenever they want to. They can give a waiver for any reason whatsoever. And I just wonder if one very simple, common sense way to argue this, if the rules have not changed in any noticeable way by the time LaMelo gets ready to enroll at UCLA, could he just say... Could UCLA simply argue on his behalf? He, this is a young person who didn't negotiate a deal with Nike or Under Armour or Reebok or Adidas or some Chinese shoe company. This is a 15-year-old who had a father who started a shoe company. LaMelo Ball didn't give his father permission to, to, to use him, to build a shoe off of his name and use him in, uh, as a marketing tool. He was 15 years old. He had no ability to give his father the, the permission. He wouldn't, even, he wouldn't even understand the concept of giving his father permission to do something. And so to hold that young person accountable when what, were, when what happened happened essentially when he was 15 years old seems insane. It's no fault of his. If he now at, at an older age understands that that was something that jeopardized his college eligibility 
And he now asks that the big baller brand no longer use him as a marketing tool or connect his name to a shoe as he gets ready to become a student athlete at a Division One university. That should be good enough. Like that's a that's a pretty decent argument. I know it doesn't fly. I know it flies in the face of NCAA rules. But when you're trying to get a waiver, you just try to make a decent argument. It's like the Isaiah Brock story I told last year. The kid who was in the army and young man, I should say, was in the army and wanted to come back and play basketball at Oakland University. He's like 25 years old at this point, And the NCAA initially denied his eligibility because they relied on a high school transcript from eight years earlier or whatever the date was. It was like when he was a different person at a different place when he was never planning to go to college. And I wrote that column and the NCAA uh, listened to his appeal and they gave him the waiver. According to their own rule book and rules, they should he should not have been eligible to play as a freshman. But they said, okay, but like, uh, what are we doing here? Eh, like, this is crazy. We shouldn't penalize somebody for something they had no control over several, several years ago. We'll give him the waiver. I could, like, that presents an interesting situation for the NCAA if you just argue something similar to what I just laid out, right? It does. And I think there are going to be two conversations happening with the NCAA here, both in the here and now and what's to come with LaMelo. Um, in terms of adjusting any rule language as needed, because I have to believe that people at the NCAA are thinking and knowing that, okay, look at the LeVar Ball, look at the Ball family situation that we have right now. Look how much attention, publicity, fame this family has garnered uh, off the fact that, you know, the Suns do have a certain amount of talent here, undeniably. Uh, there well could be another LeVar Ball, two, four, six, eight, ten years from now, they could happen, you know, relatively <laughs> relatively in like a pattern like feature here so if that's going to be the case we need to amend our language or make sure we are comfortable with everything we have in our rule book regarding situations that could arise like this the NCAA would be doing a disservice if it was not having those conversations I'd say pretty soon because I think that this is something that it needs to adapt to in the modern era having said all that if if they want to look at Lamelo's situation and grant him eligibility based on what we've discussed here Parrish I have no issue with that whatsoever, but they're also going to have to have a practical conversation about this, okay? Because the NCAA rules are not going to change in this regard, I don't believe, although I would have no issue if they did. Uh, because what, cannot... what happens, theoretically, is the next 16-year-old star goes out and actually decides to deal with Nike and, right. and, and then argues, what is the difference between signing a deal with the big baller brand and signing a deal with Nike. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But not only that, it becomes a question of... Except the truth is probably, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, LaMelo probably didn't sign a deal with anybody. His dad just probably threw him on a, you know, just like... I, I doubt LaMelo has agreed to anything. He's just... He's really working for his father's company. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. yeah. And it is and it is a family business. Um, granted, it's unlike most other family businesses, but it's <laughs> nonetheless. With all that said... The NCAA is then going to have to have a conversation and say, "Listen, you know, if we're going to grant this kid eligibility um, on on a, on a you know, in theory, on a waiver uh, reassessment and on a waiver request, well, can we have a practical conversation about the fact that okay, he might have promoted and profited, and the family certainly did off of Lamelo's likeness and his image for the past two years prior to him wanting to enroll at UCLA." But we're supposed to believe that the second he steps on that campus, that suddenly goes away because I don't think necessarily it does. I think you can easily make the argument that although it's it's not tangibly uh, findable, so to speak, the family is still going to continue to profit off of Lamella by purely, you know, in a world where he gets cleared plays at UCLA, the family is still going to be able to profit off of him when he's a when he's an a college athlete. And so when they look at all that, I think the, the NCAA is going to have to come to terms with what it is, what it can allow, what it's comfortable with. And I, I feel like we're going to have a lot more conversations, columns, stories to be written about this. But I understand if people are frustrated by the ball stuff, but I'm telling you, this could be the family. LaMelo could be the player that really causes some sort of philosophical tweaking with how the NCAA runs its amateurism model. I'm not saying it's going to he and that family is going to overhaul it. I'm saying you've never had a situation like this, and there are strong cases to be made 
for and against LaMelo having eligibility. And if he does wind up eligible and wins that on waiver or through the initial process, um, it would probably speak pretty well of the NCAA moving forward and evolving in this. But in doing that would also be a significant step toward what the NCAA might be coming down the road. So I know we're getting a little bit ahead of the, uh, you know, of the path, so to speak. But I'm just telling you, this is a conversation, I think, big picture. We're going to be having more and more. And specifically, I can totally see this being one of the biggest stories and biggest issues when we get to the spring and summer of 2019. It's going to be a massive story. And it's a nightmare for the NCAA. And here's why. Typically, when people get into these types of disputes with the uh, NCAA, um, they're, they're like their stories don't resonate nationally. They They're re- essentially private citizens to a large extent, you know? This will resonate nationally because everything LeVar does is a big, big story. And so if LeVar chooses to get in a, like, real legal dispute with the NCAA, which, honestly, why wouldn't he? I mean, it'd be the best thing for the LeVar Ball brand. Not only am I the one that told Nike and, and Adidas we can do this a different way, I'm the guy who's telling the NCAA we can do this a different way. Let's fight it out in court. And, like, they've got money now. Like, how much money is Lonzo worth? You know, like, they've got money now. I guess when LaMelo's driving a Lamborghini, <laughs> they've got money now. And so they could afford to fight this. And it's a nightmare for the NCAA because fundamentally, this is what I think will be fascinating about it. Fundamentally, the average sports fan doesn't like the NCAA. Like, they hate the NCAA. They, they hate its rules. They hate its regulations. They hate the way universities and television networks and the NCAA in general are profiting off these young people while these young people are forbidden from even signing an autograph for $5, even selling a jersey for, for 100 But guess who people don't like more than they don't like the NCAA? Oh, yeah. LeVar Ball. So, like, under normal circumstances, you might have people rooting against the NCAA. Oh. But, but in these circumstances, you might have people rooting for the NCAA because my enemy's enemy is my friend. Like they, so they, funny you say that, GP, because I was thinking when you were talking earlier, I was thinking in my mind just about that. And like, I think a lot of people would love to see LaMelo not get cleared to play college basketball. Right. It's, it's wild because I think normally you root for the student athlete, but here you might just root against LeVar Ball, which by extension means you're rooting for the NCAA. So it'll be fascinating, but I don't think the NCAA wants to deal with this at all because it'll be high profile. This won't be the little Isaiah Brock story that 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 does you know that that story got a lot of attention, but it's still it's still a player you never heard of at a school you never heard of, you know yep. th- this ain't that. I mean, this is Lavar Ball, Lamelo Ball, um, UCLA. I mean, it would be a. I mean, it would be the type of thing people cover on a daily basis every time there's even a little bit of an update, and you know there'd be an update all the time because Lavar be anxious to talk to anybody who called him. So. Um, I think it's a fascinating story. I ultimately believe LaMelo Ball will play college basketball. Do you believe he'll play college basketball? That is just a near impossible question to answer at this point. If you're making me choose one way or the other, ah, GP, uh, I'm going to say yes by the slimmest, I mean the slimmest of margins. And I say yes given the the high-profile nature of what's to come and the legal case that the balls could have on any kind of appeal. But it's it's 50.1% versus 49.9% there. It is, to me, it's I, a very... I just think, the and you're exactly right, it's way too early to know for sure. Anybody trying to tell you, they know for sure. Because there was a whole lot of people writing yesterday um, about what this means. And Well, that's the thing. I was going to write it, but honestly, like, at this point... <laughs> Nobody knows what it means. It, like it, I don't. I feel as though it would be journalistically irresponsible to lay out a case for or against it at this point because it's still in such early stages as it is that it's it's impossible to get a grasp on. And just as a reminder, the NCAA, while they might discuss this, it will not enter into any sort of formal review process, looking at the nitty gritty, asking the balls for any pertinent documents. We are almost two years out from that process. Right. and uh, But make no mistake, the NCAA will be preparing for the possibility of this in an informal way. And guess who else will? UCLA. And so here, it's impossible to know where this goes. But here's, here's what I believe. Over the next two years, UCLA, the, 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 the smart, smart people they have employed there to handle stuff like this, and I should, I, I should back up. I say stuff like, there's really never been anything like this, all right? So, like, this is all new. Um, 
but the, the people at UCLA who are hired and in a position to try to argue this, um, they will have it all laid out in, in a pretty um, – and, and I couldn't begin to guess which, which path they'll, they'll go down. But I do think there's a lot of common sense paths to go down that might get you to a good outcome. You know, if you just basically argue this, there is no contract between LaMelo Ball and the Big Baller brand. Like this is this like don't don't think of his, of this shoe company as Nike or Adidas. Don't think of him as a 16 year old basketball player who signed with Nike and Adidas. He he's a, he was a 15 year old who did what his father told him to do. He, he benefited in no way from this. He doesn't have a direct deposit from the Big Baller brand. Doesn't have a signed contract with the Big Baller brand. The same way his father told him to get up and eat eggs and sausage for breakfast. Same way his ta- father told him to go lift weights. Same way his father told him to get on the treadmill and do five miles. His father said, put these shoes around your neck and post for this picture. The, the kid is at no fault. And to hold him accountable all these years later and to make him miss out on the college experience because of a company his father started when his older brother was getting ready to leave college. That seems to 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 run counter to everything the NCAA says it's about. How does the NCAA respond to that? Yeah, no, it's you certainly make it. You make a, a really strong case, um, and if it wants to run counter to that, it's going to certainly list you know as close to precedence that it possibly can in regard to its amateurism model. But this is just you know no doubt it's going to challenge it. So we'll see going forward. The one last thing I'll tag this with is. Let's just also keep in mind, this is LeVar Ball. Sure. <laughs> um, who knows what he will have done and said bet- and what that family will have done between now and at that point. And, uh, and certainly other factors that will determine that decision are still to be decided and, and yet to arise. Let's switch gears because um, uh, I'm confident we will talk about this on another podcast probably at least 10 to 15 times over the next few years. Um, our Candid Coaches series concluded today. Uh, with a question that I don't believe we've ever asked. Have we ever asked this question? We have not. Right. The question is a simple question. Who's the most powerful person in college basketball? The leading vote-getter by a significant margin was Mike Krzyzewski. Is that who you assumed it would be? Without a doubt. I, I wanted to ask the question regardless. I wanted to see by how big of a margin Krzyzewski was going to win. Yeah, and he won by a, a, a big, big margin. I believe he got 40 – let me look at it exactly. 48 or 47? 40, 43.7% of the vote. 43%. The next closest to him was John Calipari at 20.4% of the vote. Honestly, I knew exactly how the top two would go, and I knew that they would go in that order. Krzyzewski and Calipari. And honestly, I think that's the right two. I think those are the right answers. Sometimes we get these answers back, and I'm like, I don't know about that. But like this one, just like the one b- the day before, who was the best hire this offseason, Archie Miller at Indiana, I, th- I, I, I thought that would be the answer, and I thought that was the right answer. Um, here, I thought Krzyzewski would be one, Calipari would be two. They are one and two. What I found most interesting was what came after that. And you tweeted earlier today, you were surprised by one of the people in the top three. I'm assuming that's got to be Jim Delaney. Jim Delaney, the answer, Big Ten commissioner, third most powerful person in college basketball. That surprised you? It did. Um, I, I thought maybe Delaney get, might get a little bit of run uh, just in conversations with coaches and, and talking this out. I also allowed coaches, I said, listen, who's the most powerful person in college basketball? You can pick anyone you want. It can, it can be a coach, commissioner, agent, whatever. Um, had a few outside-the-box Adam Silver responses, which I thought were really uh, smart and certainly have a point. Um, but I let coaches define powerful however they wanted to define it, right. because honestly, it's, their, it's the question for them to interpret. Um, Delaney got more votes than I expected him to, and I was also clued in a little bit more into just how much influence he has at the television level uh, and what the Big Ten Network's been able to do how wired in he is when it comes to officiating. And this is something that at least five, maybe six coaches I talked to went into some detail about. You, you had one wild quote, and honestly. Oh, you didn't include it, I no, know. And the reason was, I, it was just like, it was some pretty strong allegations. It was aggressive, I know. I, I, I have no problem with you not including it. I wanted to give you the option of if you yeah, wanted to. I didn't include it because it was some pretty strong allegations about what Jim Delaney has done. And... 
I, I, I mean, I trust your reporting on it, and I trust that that person was telling you the truth, and I trust that the story is probably true. But I just didn't want my name on that, and then it coming back and somebody saying, you know, did you verify that? Did you confirm that with somebody? And I'm like, uh, Norlander just emailed me the quote. Like, I didn't want to get into that. It didn't seem worth yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> we can even refrain from getting into too many details on this podcast. I will say it has to do with officiating, and independently, three different coaches relate essentially that information to me. So that was enough for me to give you that quote but you know what honestly that like and and we're we're probably talking a little too inside baseball like on a podcast but like that if you really got three different coaches telling you that it might be worth a straight news story yeah it's uh perhaps yes um now (laughs) one of the coaches like this is definitely off the record right i was like yeah as always okay here's what happened um but delaney who by the way this a lot of coaches said he carries a lot amount of respect a lot of coaches said Listen, I think he does. He's done a great job with the Big Ten and what he can do uh, and what he's done to help that league from a basketball perspective as well. Because I think actually both in football and basketball, I think that league has had a lot of momentum behind it over the past six, seven years. Somewhat, you know, realignment related. And I think I didn't get into this with the basketball coaches, but I think there's also a lot of belief when it comes to Delaney of of how much power he wields and influence he had when it came to some of the conference realignment uh, that was more specifically tied to football, but it was obviously one of the biggest college sports stories uh, of the, you know, the turn of this decade, so to speak. But um, Delaney being top three was a little surprising to me. I thought Billis might get a few more votes because when Jay Billis speaks on an issue, a lot of people listen, they respond. He is tremendously respected for his opinion. And by the way, there are plenty of people that will disagree with Billis on, on a lot of stuff because Billis is, you know, he is, he's not anti-NCAA, but he will attack the NCAA whenever the NCAA has, gives him an opening to do so. He's pro-student um, athlete. And, some, with, yes, that's, and sometimes absolutely. that runs, because I had one coach tell me, like, I don't agree with everything because, like, Jay doesn't think there should be transfer restrictions. Jay, and I don't know if you ever had a conversation about transfer restrictions with a college coach, but, but man, they don't like that. They don't, they, when I try to say I don't think you should be able to restrict transfers, they look at you like you're from another planet. They're like, do you know how impossible it would be to have my job if we couldn't restrict transfers or if there wasn't a penalty for transferring? So, like, I would say, at least on that issue, most coaches don't agree with Jay, but he, they still respect him because he's, his ideas are always well thought out. He's like, he's like genuinely a really smart guy. Yeah, no, without a doubt. So I knew that he was going to get votes. I thought he might get a little bit more. If you would have asked me to pick the top three, I would have said Krzyzewski, Cal, and then would have guessed Billis finished third. Um, was interesting to see Brett Just, who was a coach's agent. That's not a name most people listening to this podcast know, but he's the guy who kind of in just the cover of night got Hopkins, the Washington job maneuvered Underwood to uh, to Illinois, which was another one a lot of people didn't see coming. He is certainly an agent with some rising influence there. And, 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 and like when you say a lot of people didn't see coming, you know who else didn't see coming? And this I had one coach like put it in these terms, which I completely agree with. He said, the Illinois AD probably has no idea, independent of Brett, that you can even go get Brad Underwood. Like if, if Brett just doesn't represent Brad Underwood, the Illinois AD, like Brad Underwood's not even on, on his radar because it's like he's the head coach of Oklahoma State. He just got there a year ago. Why would we be able to get him? But when you're on the phone with Brett, who represents like 50 different coaches, and Brett says, would you be interested in Brad Underwood? And the Illinois AD says, well, could I get Brad Underwood? Brett said, well, he's underpaid, bad relationship with the athletic director, or whatever Brett said. I don't have any idea, but I do know those things were true, that, that Brad had a bad relationship with the Oklahoma State athletic director and he was underpaid. If Illinois is ready to put the money up, let's uh, let's go. That hire, I don't think happens without Brett representing Brad Underwood. And same thing with the Washington thing. If you're the Washington AD, does, is is Mike Hopkins even on your radar? Unless you're talking to Brett just about your opening, and and he says, you know, I represent Mike Hopkins. Um, you know, would you be interested in that? Like, I I do think at least in those two cases, those guys are coaching at places now that they would not be if not if not for. If not for Brett being the representative, is that overstating it? No, I think that's pretty much right on the money there. And I don't think that agents in – because in college, obviously, players don't have agents officially, so to speak, the way that it happens in the NBA. So you just have coach uh, agents representing coaches. And so agents don't carry as much influence as they do. Obviously, I mean, basically, in the NBA, it's, it's considered that the agents run the whole league, uh, the, the guys that are representing the players. But I think a little bit more and more we are seeing how agents can improve 
the lives of a lot of coaches who have options and who have prospects and have the ability to to move or get more money if they want. I think that is a dynamic that has been there to a certain extent, don't get me wrong, but I think in the past seven or eight years, um, from what I gather at least, that that is becoming a dynamic that athletic directors are having to deal with on an almost annual basis where 20 years ago, I just don't think that was nearly the case, uh, nearly as much. And now you're getting into situations where there are plenty of assistant coaches that have agents. I mean, this was not a thing... From what I'm told, if you, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you didn't have an agent if you were an assistant coach. Now, more and more guys, as they get into those associate head coach roles and know that they've, they're going to have opportunities for interviews, forget about just getting a job, just getting the interview, getting down to that final three. Well, if you've got an agent representing you, that could put you in a really strong position, uh, particularly if that agent, like Brett, is representing coaches who have gotten really good jobs and done done a lot for for. You know, a number of guys. So that's just another element there. GP, I wanted to ask you about the list in general. Um, any surprises about names that came back? Or how about anyone that didn't receive multiple votes that you might want to include and would be worthy of a top seven or eight standing? Um, I thought the Rick Patino votes were interesting and, and probably uh, accurate if, you know, as long as we're allowing coaches to, to define power however they want. Because, like, uh, how you know you you by I think you gotta be powerful to keep your job, <laughs> given uh, you gotta be powerful and awesome at your job to keep your job, given everything that Rick's been through at, at Louisville over the past whatever. So um, I think th- those answers made sense. Um, I'm with you on the Adam Silver answers. Like some people looked at that and were like, uh, I don't, you know, I don't. Why is the NBA commissioner powerful in college basketball? Well, like if he made a point to like change the one and done rule, it could get changed. Like, if Adam Silver decided to make that his pet project, like, my goal for the next CBA is to change the one-and-done rule, he could have a mat. Like, he could change college basketball. He has the power to do that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and, and so if you've got the power to change college basketball, like, you, then you're a powerful person in the sport of college basketball. I actually think Adam Silver probably deserved more votes. So um, do I. But I hadn't thought – he wasn't on my radar of GP in the first – first silver response i got was like i'll be honest it was like a head coach at like a tiny school in a one-bit league right i thought damn that's a really smart response well, I, I guess I, I i struggle with this because I, I say i think adam silver should have gotten more votes in reality i think my Shishetsky should have got all the votes like i think you know if we're just asking for one name then the one name should be coach k but like if we were to say who are the top five most powerful people in college basketball I think Adam Silver should have been on a bunch of those lists because he has real power. Now, he hasn't executed it yet, but whenever he wants to change, if he ever decides, you know what, I don't like high school players going to college for a year. Or, you know what, I want high school players to go to college for three years. He has the power to make that happen. Like, it could be a sticking point in the next negotiation with the Players Association. And when you've got the power to do that, you've got, you're a powerful person. So Adam Silver, I think, makes sense. Um, Delaney makes sense to me, too, because, like, that Big Ten Network, I had one coach tell me, look at all their program's budgets now, men's basketball. They've all got money because every Big Ten school's got so much money because of that Big Ten Network, and that's Jim Delaney. And now he's scheduling in a different way. It's going to force other people to schedule in a different way. Like, he's he's got real you know, real, real power, not only in that league, but throughout the country. Um, and, and then the officiating thing is something I'd never really gotten into with anybody. But um, but obviously, like th- there is a perception among college coaches that nobody has more influence over officiating at the national level than than Jim Delaney. So like th- that that would make sense. Um, William Wesley got multiple votes. I think that probably I, I bet you this. I bet you the votes that Wes got, because nobody voted for him with me. I think you got those votes. I did. I bet you the votes for Wes came from people who have never met Wes. They're just in the coaching profession. I think that's a, a decent likelihood. I, I would not agree that William Wesley is even a top 15 person of influence at the college now, level. Now, I do think Wes, Wes used to, now I'm not trying to say Wes didn't have power. Wes is still Wes. Like, don't get it twisted. But, like, Wes used to be really super involved with, um, you know, like, we don't have to tell secrets. Like, when John was at Memphis, like, Wes was, you know, Chris Douglas Roberts, 
never visited, you know, committed to Memphis without ever even setting foot in the city of Memphis. Like, and, and, and he calls Wes Uncle Wes. I mean, like, there's probably a connection there. You know, Wes was tied into a lot of those players that, that turned Memphis into, um, you know, an absolute monster at the Division One level under John Calipari. And it doesn't mean that anything improper went on. It just means that Wes had his fingers on some of the best prospects in the country and had, a, you know, incredible, you know, influence with Nike and, and, and John utilized that relationship to, to help build a, um, a top-flight college basketball program. Uh, so I, I think Wes was very, very powerful back then because he was, dict- he was on some level helping determine, you know, who the, you know, who was going to elite eights and who was going to final fours. Like he had a role in that. Um, again, I, not an improper role or not an obviously improper role, but he had a role in that. I, I think even John would would acknowledge that. Um, but is Wes still out there working for John Calipari or helping John Calipari in tangible ways? I don't know. Like, you don't hear that so much anymore. I mean, do you hear that so much anymore? I don't. In fact, I'll be, you know, listen, I started, I started with CBS in 2010. And uh, before I got to CBS and then 2010, 2011, a little bit, I guess, into 2012. Like, I remember being with you might have been 2011 or 2012 Final Four and seeing Wes out. Like, he was still there. But I'll be honest, like, over the past three or four years, I just don't get really that sense that, the, you know, there's a ton of buzz surrounding him, a lot of juice surrounding him. So Well, what happened, what happened is Wes got too famous to be Wes. Like, Wes, point. Wes was better operating in the shadows. Like, have I ever told you that my first Wes story? I believe you have, but I can't recall it off the top. So, you know, I'm like a young reporter, commercial pill in Memphis, and Dewan Wagner's at Memphis, um, who, like, Wes is legitimately his godfather. Um, Wes and Milt Wagner, like, that's that's the connection to Cal is through, you know, how Wes broke into all this is, is through Milt Wagner and Camden. They're both from Camden. And that, that's the connection to Michael Gil- Gil- Gilchrist. You know, uh, Gilchrist was from there. He's known Mike since... Since Mike was a kid, I think he was friendly with Mike's mother and, and Mike's uh, deceased father. Um, so anyway, uh, Wani uh, Wani Wags is in Memphis, and I'd be at the Fit yes, Center. Wani Wags. <laughs> I love Wani Wags. I'd be at the Fit Center every uh, day for practice because practice was open, and I would just sit there with Wes. Now you you got to remember this is like two thousand. It's like two thousand. Okay. Oh wow, that far back. Damn. Yeah. I mean, this is like two, it's 19, like 2000, 2001, way back then. So, Wani called, all I knew about Wes, and he wasn't Worldwide Wes, he was just Wes. That's what everybody called him, Wes. And all I knew is that he was from Camden, Wani was from Camden, and he was, he was Uncle Wes. That's what, that's what Wani called him, Uncle Wes. And I, I knew that he wasn't actually his uncle, but he was like best friends with Milt forever. And so it was just Uncle Wes was around all the time. Every day, I just sit in, it's like me. Like those Memphis practices were so funny because like Cal would open them up to not anybody, but you would have a cast of characters in there. So it would be me, Wes, like a top five executive from FedEx, uh, a priest, uh, a a cancer patient from St. Jude, an an agent, a drug dealer. Like you just had all sorts of people in there. Like it was just like it was like a, a, a should have been a reality show. And so, it sounds like a Netflix series coming in 2019. Oh, I mean, it was it was just great. And so um, I would just sit there every day with Wes. And then one day, I'm at practice. Wes and I, Wes is there at practice on a Monday afternoon, like 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock. I get home, uh, turn on the television for Monday Night Football, and the Dolphins are playing. It's a home game in Miami. And I look on the sideline, and there's Uncle Wes. On the sideline at the Dolphins game. And I'm like, what in the world is Wes doing at the Dolphins game? On the sideline. It didn't make it. Because you got to understand, there had never been a word written about Wes at this point. Wes was just, Dewan Wagner's uncle is to the extent that anybody knew him. Outside of like that inside basketball world where Wes was a big deal. But nobody knew him outside of that world. That's my point. And so he gets back. He's back at Memphis practice the next day. I'm like, Wes, what? No, did I see you last night? He's like, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I got some friends down there. He's very vague about what was going on. And then, like, I believe it was that same year. It might have been even earlier. Like, Arthur Barclay, who was 
Dewan's best friend, also from Camden. Um, the Lennox Lewis Mike Tyson fight that was at the Pyramid in Memphis. The night before that fight, Jay Z had a concert in Memphis. I believe it was the night before the fight. And it was broadcast live on like something. I don't remember. Showtime, HBO, but it was like I was at home watching it live from the Mid South Coliseum, Jay Z. And Jay comes out on stage. And on stage with Jay, like holding the towel and waving it around, Arthur Barclay. I'm like, what is Arthur? What is his, his, his nickname was OG. I'm like, what is O? He's like 19 years old from Camden on stage with Jay-Z. I'm like, what in the world is OG on stage with? So like next, you know, Monday at practice, I'm like, OG, like, did I see you on stage with Jay? Like Friday night? And he says, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, how do you end up on stage with Jay-Z? He's like, oh, I've been knowing Jay for a long time. I've been knowing Jay for a long time. That was the exact quote. I'll never forget it. I've been knowing okay. Jay. For, I've been knowing Jay for a long time. I mean, you're 19 years old. How you been knowing Jay for a long time? You know what the answer is, Wes. And so that's back when Wes could operate in, you know, operate the way Wes was operating. He could be in a gym. Nobody knew who he was. He could be anywhere. Nobody knew who he was. And then he got super famous. And now he can't go. He can't operate in the shadows anymore because he's not in the shadows. He cast the shadow now. And yes. I, I think he became less effective at what he, at the way he operated once, you know, like he totally had, like he totally had to legitimize himself. You know, he's, he's technically an employee of CAA now. Right. Like, like he couldn't work in the shadows anymore because he was too famous. And so uh, I'm, I would never, I would never suggest that West doesn't have power. He still does have power. And I still see him all the time. And it's like, he's, he and I've been friendly forever. Um, like we we rode to the NBA draft together, like Dewan's NBA draft. Like we were in the car together going to that. Um, I've liked Wes for a long time, but I don't know that he actually has an impact on college basketball today the way he once did. If that makes sense. Yeah, and then lastly, before we move on here, I just want to mention that I think five years from now, um, if we were to ask this question, my prediction is that Dan Gavitt would be a top five answer. He doesn't self promote. He's the guy who basically runs men's division one college basketball sure. oversees the tournament selection committee is very involved when it comes to uh advancing how the bracket is seated and selected and wanting to get that to be a lot better uh, i think he's done tremendous good for the game and has helped the ncaa in a lot of regards not just with that but with public relations etc cetera, etc cetera. so i i think a lot of coaches might know of him don't know him too too well personally I, I expect over the next five years as the tournament, I, I just, I don't, first of all, I just think the tournament continues to be this just massive event. And as we continue to have the ability to watch it on our phones and iPads, computers, and it's still going to be a huge, huge thing. I, I just, I expect Gavitt's influence to become more well-known over the next five years. So he got a couple of votes. I would, I would say that he is uh, only going to continue in his influence in a good way too. He gets tremendous amount of respect and is uh, is obviously the son uh, of Dave Gavitt, who was the father of the Big East and, and built the Big East. So he has a, an interesting family family legacy as well. I uh, I thought we should probably acknowledge that it's been a sad week in college basketball before we get out of here, and that's um, uh, with the fact that we lost two national championship winning coaches. First, um, Judd Heathcote, uh, the Michigan uh, State legend, and uh, and then of course. Rolly Massimino, who coached Villanova to an improbable national championship in, in, in 1985. Uh, just to, you know, anytime you lose somebody who is, like you and I, I'm older than you, but we grew up watching this sport. And if you grew up watching the sport, like Judd Heathcote was a big figure in the sport. And Rolly Massimino was a big figure in the sport. And to lose... Uh, both of them in a span of three days was just uh, it, was, it was a tough week. I, I don't want to overstate it. Not necessarily for me. I never met Judd. I I had been around Raleigh a little bit. Um, he was on set with us at the Final Four when Villanova won the national championship. CBS Sports Network. So I was around him then. I think I was around them um, at a Villanova what amounted to Midnight Madness one time. I I. I uh, but I'd been around Raleigh a little bit and by all accounts, like he's a fun guy. So I don't, I don't want to suggest that like I was heartbroken by what happened. I, I didn't really know these men. They were both um, out of division one basketball by the time I got the job to cover division one basketball, but it is tough for, I know it's been a tough week for men that I do know. Well, you know, Tom Izzo and, 
and Mark Few, you know, Jay Wright and Steve Lapis, uh, because they lost uh, they lost friends and who were very, very important in their lives, both personally and and professionally. So it has been a hard week for college basketball and some of our biggest college basketball coaches. Yeah, I got a few I got a few thoughts on this. Uh, first with Judd. Um, never met Judd. I have had Izzo tell me about Judd plenty of times over the years. Uh, the amount of respect that both Izzo and Izzo's boss, Mark Hollis, and his you know long, long time friend, the athletic director of Michigan State, have for Heathcote is immense. I think it's uh, very Pittsburgh Steelers-like of the Michigan State Spartans, given that they've had two coaches since 1976, and that's Heathcote and Izzo. Izzo got the job in '95, and you know, obviously, I was just I was 13 at the time. I couldn't tell you the the true temperature on college basketball hiring processes at the time, but I've always got the impression that Heathcote really went to bat for Izzo to get that job at a time when Michigan State could have easily gone elsewhere. And it's amazing, given that Heathcote did that. And then Izzo has, I mean, to me, Heathcote's a legend. Coach Magic Johnson coached in the most, uh, the highest rated TV game of all time for college basketball. That's probably a record that will never be broken, 79 over Indiana State, given the nature of how we watch and television ratings work today. Um, so Heathcote's a legend. I, you just Izzo's the greatest coach. He's gone on to become the greatest coach in Michigan State's program. Well, I think that's true at both these schools. Like we just lost legend national championship coaches at both of them, and yet the men coaching at those schools right now are probably more successful basketball coaches. I do think that is correct, and I think both those coaches, Izzo and Jay Wright, would refuse to accept that um, and would absolutely insist that the men that came before them were uh, are the greatest coaches in, the, in that program's history, et cetera, et cetera. So for Heathcote. Um, yeah, it was good to see him get the amount of love and respect that he got because I almost felt a little bit like Massimino's tied to that epic 85 championship. And don't get me wrong, Heathcote winning with Michigan State, that's a big-time deal. Like That was huge. But, but you're kind of supposed like, to win with Magic. Yeah, and, and with Massimino, it was more like he was in the Big East. They won over Georgetown. It was this massive upset. Villanova's first title, granted, I know it was Michigan State's first as well, but it just seemed like Massimino was more on the forefront of people's minds when they thought about like legendary coaches so, from well, that era. They're kind of equal stand. Do you remember right? who Villanova beat in the national semifinals that year? They beat then, and by the way, I got a math story coming here, but they, uh, they beat then Memphis state, I believe. And I think that those, I think that Memphis, you're going to know this. So, but I'm pretty sure that Memphis state team eventually had that final four vacated, right? Because yes. didn't like almost all the Memphis a, final fours are vacated. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, Memphis is very good about making the Final Four and then having to vacate it. Uh, no, really, they've been to three Final Fours, two of them are vacated. Crazy. Uh, um, but that's like my that's one of my earliest sports memories. Um, you know, I was eighty five Final Four. I was eight years old. It's one of the earliest sports okay. memories for me. Um, you know, mem- because all I can remember is my parents talking about uh, the national championship game is going to be awesome. Keith Lee against Patrick Ewing. Like, that's where we're headed. Keith yeah. Lee against Patrick Ewing. And then this Villanova thing comes out of, out of nowhere. And then Villanova ends up being the national champion. But, like, Raleigh's biggest professional moment is also one of my earliest sports memories just in general, based on a little more than where I lived. Yeah, but that's kind of cool. Like, we all have those moments. Everyone listening to this podcast, whether it's college hoops or the NFL or hockey or whatever, there are just, you know, two or three moments that you first remember most. Like, the, the very first moment of clarity I have with a college connected to college basketball is I remember my mother not letting me stay up to watch UNLV win the 1990 national championship and then waking up really early the next morning asking her, her who won and how the game happened. Like, I was, what, maybe nine at the time. I have some other sports memories before that, a lot of Walter Payton stuff, but college hoops. I, that's the the one clear for sure memory that I have, uh, and I thought it was interesting how we lost Tark and Dean Smith a couple of years ago within a matter of days, and now we lose uh, Mass and Heathcote in a couple of days here. Let's hope all is well. Just want to pass along the fact that uh, Louisville's Denny Crum recently suffered from a stroke. He's recovering from that. Hopefully, uh, he's on the mend and doing well. Real quick though, I wanted to. I talked so I wrote the obit on Mass, and then mm-hmm. I talked to Lapis on Wednesday night. Passed along a few interesting tidbits. Um, cause I asked him, Hey, listen, when you joined Massimino's staff, was he considered, you know, to be, to be rightfully sitting at the same table with John Thompson and Luke Karnasek? I know Bayheim hadn't won a title yet, so he was still relatively young, but what was it like? And what was interesting from Lapis, he said, think about how we view Sean Miller right now. 
That's what Massimino was then. I thought I was working for a top five to seven coach in the country. He just had not won a national championship. He had gone to three elite eights. He had brought that Villanova program to prominence in a legitimate league. I would have never made that uh, connotation, GP. I thought that was super interesting to know that that's kind of what Massimino was considered back then, like unequivocally a top 10 coach just waiting to kind of finally break through. He, I, I also asked him how he joined the staff, and he's like, you got to get, yeah, understand this. I was coaching Harry Truman High School in the Bronx. I was Rod Strickland's high school coach. Mass was recruiting him. Within, you know, 20 minutes of talking to me, I mentioned that I applied for the Columbia assistant job, and Massimino goes, hey, you want me to make you a call and get you in there? And Lapis said it was just one of these things where, like, I didn't know the guy, and he was already so trusting of me that he was, like, genuinely willing to make the call. He didn't get the Columbia assistant job, and then within a matter of months, he winds up on Massimino's staff at Villanova, and then within a matter of less than two years, Lapis is on that staff that wins the, uh, that wins the 85 title. And the other thing that he mentioned was, you know, I got into talking about how, to me, it was so interesting with Massimino. He was a true college hoops lifer, Parrish. He's like, you hear that kind of phrase tossed around here and there. Dude, coached 11 years at the NAIA level. A number of blocks from where CBSSports.com's headquarters are, by the way, down in West Palm Beach, Florida. Did not have to do this. Who knows what his salary was. Basically gained very little, uh, you know, press publicity from all of this but continued to do it for 55 of the final 58 years of his life, I think I wrote. He coached college basketball, and Lapis said, this is nothing against Krzyzewski or Beheim, but do you think there's any chance that they would be coaching at that level? No, when they leave their schools, they're going to leave them for good. Massimino truly just wanted to coach, wanted to be around these kids. He had lung cancer, decided a few years ago not to continue with treatment. So for the past two seasons, he was coaching while he was sick and knowing that he was effectively just dying he was not going to fight this and he was ready to continue to coach into this season even if it meant he was going to die in the middle of the season or whenever it might come so I think his turn was a little bit unexpected in terms of how fast he went downhill but I, I just think it speaks a lot to his like true complete utter devotion to coaching college basketball I, you just will not get that with almost anyone else into your 80s NAI level slogging it out at Kaiser University, I think it's it kind of is a testament to who he was and how much he loved the game. Yeah, and there's a handful of guys like that who just want to keep coaching. They don't care. Uh, like they, I mean, they prefer to still be coaching at the biggest schools in the sport, but um, ultimately they just prefer to be in a gym than not in a gym. Larry Brown, I think, fits that description. Um, yep. By all accounts, Jim Calhoun seems to kind of fit that description yeah, because I mean, he might he might be coaching some brand new program in connecticut a year from now so well, you're absolutely right right like some guy they just like they you know it, it's interesting because and i've had this conversation with coaches before these days guys get into the coaching profession for a variety of reasons like um some it, it can be fame it can be money because you're getting rich i mean guys are stupid rich now but at a time when when riley got in or uh you know, Larry Brown got in or uh, Jim Calhoun got in, just to name the guys we were talking about here. Um, y you had no visions of becoming super famous or becoming super wealthy. It was just like, I, 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 I love basketball. I want to coach basketball. Like it really was like just about working with young people and enjoying being in the gym, teaching and learning, teaching and learning. Um, these days you like – you would have never gotten gotten into the coaching profession, you know, when those guys got into the coaching profession because you were an elite level recruiter, <laughs> you know, absolutely right. Because you were tied yeah. because you were tied to an agent, uh, because you, you know, now you got guys who coach grassroots basketball teams simply because they can make a living doing it and then hustle players off to colleges, mm -hmm. or hustle players off to agents. Just like the. The, the motivation to enter the profession is so different today than it was when those guys entered it. And that, that could be the reason why you see them coach, in, in Raleigh's case, literally until the day he dies. Because they, 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 that's all he ever wanted to do. It's why he got into it. Whereas these days, we're watching guys get into the profession, not because they love coaching, but because they love hustling players. Not because they love coaching, but because they... Um, you know they 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 love you know looking at they love private jets you know they love five star hotels they love 2.5 million dollar salaries 
it's certainly that's not the case across the board, but it's certainly more true today than it was back then. And maybe that's a, I don't know, I, I might be stretching a little bit, but maybe that's the reason you see guys like Calhoun and Blair Brown and, and, and Massimino have trouble walking away from the sport because, yeah, they got the money to walk away, but it was never about money for them. They just wanted to, like, coach basketball. This is what they wanted to do. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny you mention that because Lapis also mentioned about his just pure desire to want to coach, and he specifically mentioned, you know, in Lapis's opinion, just basically the majority of, of guys that coach today, when they get in, they are recruiters first right. and relationship people first, which, by the way, you, you need to have that element as, a, as to be a successful coach, in my opinion, obviously, but um, just truly knowing the game and wanting to know it and X and O, um, you know, 40 years ago, you were the extreme exception if you got into coaching and, that, and you didn't have those credentials. And now, at least at, at, at a significant Division One level, I should say. And now, um, it's just not, it's not the same like that. Um, so Lapis had mentioned specifically, and it is, you know, we are losing these legends of the sport who are from a different era and it's you know listen life goes on and it's uh it's certainly part of it but it it is you know it is something of a bummer i i, I can't deny like you know, this is greatly affected obviously um all the coaches we mentioned who are still active today a lot of whom got into it because of their desire uh to coach and do the x's and o's but it's 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 no doubt it's been a rough week for for jay and steve and a few and izzo and plenty of others who knew these men so well i um and, and we'll get out of here quickly but i do think that's like an issue within college basketball that used to to reach the highest level of the sport like you had to prove yourself as a coach but now the easier way to become a division one head coach is to establish yourself as a player getter like first as an assistant and then you get the mid-major job then you out recruit your league then you get the power conference job making two million dollars a year but like can you coach or have you just always been somebody who acquired talent uh, I, I think that affects coaching. Like, trying, if you tried to become John Beeline today by doing what, John, how, by taking the path John Beeline took to become John Beeline, you've got no chance. It's, I mean, you'd have to be, you'd have to get extremely lucky along the way. You it cannot, just, uh, you his, can, his path does not seem repeatable in 2017. No, like, you cannot become John Beeline by doing what John Beeline did to become John Beeline. Like the way you have to get the Michigan job now or, or some similar job is like establish yourself as a player getter, which makes one of those big time coaches hire you. And then you become one of the hottest assistants in America. And then you get a mid-major job. And then you get into the tournament. You win two games. And now you've got a high major job. Like that's the path to that now. Just trying to be a basketball coach, just purely a basketball coach. Um, it's, it's a much, much different, much more difficult road than it's Yeah, like. and by the way, a lot of these coaches started, this doesn't really happen anymore. I mean, occasionally you'll get it, but they started at the high school level. And then they go through, like, Massimino. I think we coached high school for like, yeah. He was the assistant for Hubie Brown at the high school level. Right. How insane is that? Oh, or like, try to find high school coaches who, try to find, how many, how many Division One high major coaches ever coached in high school now? Almost none. That's a question i mean i, I there's got to be uh well that, maybe used, a couple, that, that used to be part of the path like you yeah. get a high school coach job and then you'd get a, a college assistant job and then now it's like you skip all that you connect yourself with an agent and go get a job go hustle players then you get a job i'm not saying it's right or wrong but now yeah. it's like okay you played in college you maybe try europe for two or three years you go back you got a connection you become a dobo for a year or two wait to get that third assistant spot from there you prove yourself that you can recruit like that's much more the path now for right. guys that want to become coaches. Right, right. So anyway, shouts to Devin, shouts to Devin Downey. There we go. Shouts to Devin Downey. Have a tremendous Labor Day weekend. You got anything planned here for this? Uh, I guess three and a half, four day weekend, whatever we want to call it. Saturday is my wife's birthday. Okay, there we go. Happy S birthday, Kelly. Happy birthday to Kelly. So we will be doing a birthday dinner. Um, I've uh, tell me if this is evil. I scheduled a slightly early dinner reservation, and I was like, you know, it'd just be better to get in there and get dinner early, and then um, and then we could go do whatever we want to do the rest of the night. We got some friends going with this, or we could get home early to the kids, like whatever we decide. In reality, I just want dinner over by the time Alabama Florida State kicks off. Yeah, I know where you were going with that. <laughs> so um, we will go to dinner, and uh, whatever happens after that happens after that, and then I'm hosting 
hosting CBS Sports Radio on Monday morning. There we go. From 9 to noon Eastern. You can stream it on the CBS Sports app if you're bored completely out of your mind. And uh, that's it. Just hang around the house. Man, I'm, I don't go anywhere. Just hang around the house. All right. I dig it, man. We're going to... I'll save this for future podcast episodes, but we hope to be moving into a, a house come October. And uh, just th- that transition, like, the th- I, I feel like Home Depot is in my future for, like, 20 of the next 28 weekends of my life. Like, I'm just not looking forward to that aspect of it. Don't get me wrong. Why? You got a lot of, like, work to do on the home? Uh, it's just, like, no, no, actually, relatively speaking, it's not total turnkey, as they say, but it's there are just little things here and there. And we also like, I got to pick out a lawnmower, you know, I just kind of do all this stuff. Like, I don't know. So I just, how Home Depot's how, how big is your yard? Uh, the yard is like 0.82 acres or something like that. So. I read a, I read a story uh, not too long ago and it was interesting and I completely subscribe to this. People always talk about how money can't buy you happiness, right? You hear that all the time. Money can't buy you happiness. And there's a study that showed it can actually buy your ha- buy you happiness if you spend it in the right ways. It, it it won't buy you happiness if you spend it on a guitar. It won't buy you happiness. Oh, I disagree with that. But okay, okay. I, I I knew you were going to disagree with that. Hear me out. It won't buy you happiness if you spend it on dinner. Like if you go spend fifty bucks on dinner tonight, I mean you'll have a nice dinner, but it won't it won't that it won't make you obviously you'll still feel the same way tomorrow that you felt tonight. You know the day before yesterday. It won't make you happy. Money won't if you go spend it on clothes or purses or shoes or whatever. Do you know where money does actually make you happy? If you spend it to get people to do things you don't want to do. My point being this. You can make yourself happy with money if you spend it on a lawn service. Okay. I will take into consideration. I kind of have this weird like dad life dream of like cutting the lawn every couple of weeks but that could be totally misguided so. i've literally never cut my yard yeah i know you've also that you don't like manual labor gp like this is not this is not new like you i remember we did that podcast like three years ago you didn't know how to change a tire because you'd never done it or something like yeah, that Yeah, I, I don't change my own tires either but like that no invest in services if you how much does it cost and how much does it cost yearly for you to have your lawn maintained and how big is your lawn okay my yard is about 1.5 acres. Okay. We have a lot of um, flower. Uh, here's what yeah, I'll just be. I'll be completely honest. Year round, here's what we do. We have the yard treated. You know, they spray it and all that stuff. The yard is cut once a week, every Thursday. Once a week. Once a week, and the flower beds are pulled, cleaned, redone, everything, every three weeks, year round, and we pay 250 a month. Hmm. Okay. I'll I'll weigh the pros and cons. But have you ever tried to like actually do your own flower beds? Like pull weeds? Dude, I'm not. No, I'm not doing any of that. Well, you. But gonna... we don't like. We're not gonna have a flower bed. Like there'll be a couple of things. Where, Dude. Like, there's a high bush around the house and stuff like that. Dude, I finally just said. I finally just called the lawn service. I said, just I want you to do everything because every once in a while I'd be like, oh, I'll go out there and pull my own weeds. <laughs> And then no I, shot. I, dude, I, I would get out there and I'd be out there for 45 minutes and you look up and you've done nothing like you're 45 minutes in and it's nothing's accomplished. It looks no different than it looked 45 minutes ago. And I swear to God, like if somebody would have, you know, sometimes they just drive around the neighborhood and be like, hey, you need some sod. Let me know or whatever they say. Uh, I, I was like, if somebody drove up with a truck right now and said, we will finish this for you, but it will cost a thousand dollars. I'd be like, take my thousand dollars. I cannot look at this anymore. And so I finally just said, I don't want to ever deal with this anymore. So, and now guess what? I'm happy. I bought my happiness for two hundred fifty dollars a month. Pretty good price. Listen, yeah, and plus, like you know, with the time commitment for all that, I t- I totally get that. I, I totally. But get like, that. I, like, but how about this? When I, we really just used to get the yard cut, that's all we paid. It was, it was, I want to say forty bucks. Which I thought was amazing, like two, almost two acres, like forty bucks. That's that Mississippi labor. Yeah, I get you. But they cut the yard and like they, they, it's it's wild. They pull up in a truck, they jump out. It's yeah. like four of them. They got like four, like one dude's got a weed eater, another dude's got a lawnmower, another dude's got something else. They get that thing done in like ten minutes. It's unbelievable. Watch them. It's like watching those NASCAR guys change a tire. 
It's like, how do they do that so quickly? Like, I'd be out there all day. They, they got the whole yard cut in like 15 minutes. I dig it. Shout out to them. Shout out to Devin Downing, Chester, South Carolina, Terry, MF, and Teagle. Shout out to buying your own happiness by purchasing services. Don't spend your money on products. You won't be happy. Spend your money on services. Appreciate we'll services. have more updates as we get as we get closer. This process has been, ay, caramba. Uh, but La- anyway, lawn services, housekeeping services, laundry services, nanny services. That's where I want to spend all my money for the rest of my life, so I never have to do anything. Not surprising in the least to hear you say that, GP. Remember, all I want to do is record podcasts. That's all I want to do. This is this is the most this is the the the, the most labor I want to do. Recording a podcast. You can subscribe to it. I own College Basketball Podcast via iTunes. So please do that. Thank you all for listening. Seriously, just so you know I'm not being crazy. Go look up that study. I think it was in the New York Times. You can, Money can buy you happiness. Read it. I believe you. And by the way, to punctuate what GP is saying, he's recording the podcast. I will then edit and upload the podcast. <laughs> right, yeah. This is all I do. I talk into the microphone. He does not pay me to do that. No, yeah. I, 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 I talk into the microphone and then I hit stop and then I send it to you and I'm done with it. In fairness to me, I have to write the stupid post. That's true. That's and, true. And that's a pain in the ass, by the way. Well, you know what? We all got to do our part. I guess. All right. I'll send, this over. I'll send this over to you in just a second. All right, buddy. <laughs> I'll see you. Bye-bye.